welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, a resource designed to form substantive disciples for the local church. My name is Hannah, and I'm on staff here at High Point Church. And today's episode comes from a seminar that we held here at High Point back in March of 2017, at which leaders of the church met to explore what it means to be a multicultural church and to think about where it fits with the gospel and the purpose of churches generally as well as High Point specifically. We also discussed where High Point is at in the process of becoming a more multicultural church and how we envision our next steps in the process. In this episode, you'll hear our lead pastor, Nick Gibson, discussing High Point Church's value of being a multicultural church. This is the first of two talks we'll be airing from that seminar, so keep an eye out for the second one from Pastor Steve Nicholson as well. Enjoy. We invited Steve Nicholson to come and talk about this because um, the, a bunch of the staff went to his church for the vineyards. Um, I think it was their first multi-ethnic and multicultural um, denominational event. And so it was really close by, fairly inexpensive for us to go to, and we were psyched to do it. So I actually don't want to talk for very long because I want you to get time with Steve. I, he's the pastor of a church that's larger, longer, that he planted, that's in a, in a he's, he's been walking this out for much longer. But I do want you to know kind of where we are to have that context for um, listening to Steve. And also I want everybody to kind of be on the same page. Most of our staff is here, most of our elders are here, and a lot of our ministry leaders and so on. And I've talked to our elders about this, we've talked to our staff about this, um, but we're, we're kind of all in the same room. So um, I'm really just gonna go through this list. I'm gonna try to do this as briefly as possible. But I do, wanna, I do want us all to be on the same page at least. You know, what we've all, I've told everybody else in kind of the page that every other different group is on. Does that make sense? So let me go through these. <clears throat> the first is multiculturalism is a natural product of gospel love. That is, all of the interrelationships in humanity um, are fostered by the gospel, and the gospel is designed by God to be a um, something that tears down the dividing wall of hostility between all tribal groups of all kinds, whether that is age, um, whether it is language, culture, continent, history, whatever it is, the gospel is designed to tear down the dividing wall of hostility and humanity. That could be between a husband and a wife who hate each other's guts right now, or it can be between races that have a very long and protracted history of hating and hurting each other. And um, you'll know if you know anything about world history that blacks and whites in America is not the only group that that's true for, right? Um, that's true everywhere among all people. Racism is a ubiquitous human phenomenon. And so, um, anyway. Second one is I, Nick Gibson, am, com am committed to multiculturalism. Um, in terms of timeline, it's easy for people to assume that because, uh, that, that multiculturalism is something we got interested in maybe when Lloyd came on staff, or um, when we had people who weren't all white on our staff team. And really, all that did was make it possible for us to do more because we had some point people and people in leadership um, that could help make that happen because you have to have a group of people who are a little diverse to really move forward with multi-ethnicity and multiculturalism. Does that make sense? And so um, Alexi, and I, Alexi and I were the only white people singing a gospel choir when we were an undergrad. Um, I have uh, an African-American Haitian goddaughter. Uh, we, I mean, God is, ha, has had us in this world, for, me in this world, for a lot of years. Um, and so it, it, I have, I've been working more um, directly toward this end recently in the last few years, but it's, it's not like this is new for me and like Lloyd came on staff and like twisted my arm. Both of us feel very deeply about this. 
Both of us believe that it's very important, both theologically as well as experientially. And we also believe that it's important in terms of contextualization, in terms of where our society is going, that we, if we're, the more urban we are, the more immigrants there are moving throughout the world, the more important this is going to be. And so um, we believe that, that we need to be focused. I want you to know that I am um, as or more committed to this than, than anybody else I know of that's on our team or in our church. Um, I, as a senior pastor, have lots of things I have to worry about, lots of things I have to be concerned about, and working for unity is something that's important, and I have to take the whole flock wherever we need to go, so I don't have the luxury of being the avant-garde, gadfly, prophetic voice that speaks to the power of the flock and tells everybody they're horrible. It's my job to lead the flock where they need to go, and so I have to hold together the people who think of themselves as prophetic voices and people who think themselves as upholders of a culture that is culturally specific but that they think is universal and all the different groups it's my job to try to take the whole flock in a direction and so everybody's not going to like me about this um, and that's the way it is that's what being a shepherd is um, but I, I want you to know wherever you think you are on that um, I am very deeply committed to this and I think it's at the center of, at the center of the things the gospel should produce in a community of people in a local church does that make sense Third is achieving multiculturalism takes time, but not because we have to wait. Um, <clears throat> the, if you've ever read a letter, to Birmingham, letter from Birmingham Jail or some of the other writings, especially by Dr. King, but other civil rights writers as well, one of the things that was um, very conspicuous in the early years of the civil rights movement was a lot of Southern whites in particular kept saying, you just need to wait. Like, things will change. You just need to wait. And although that was partially true in that, for example, the, the black middle class in America, or blacks came out of poverty at a much faster rate from the 1940s through the 1950s than they did in the 60s and later. And so it, it, was, it was true that blacks were coming out of poverty at the fastest rate ever in the history of America during those time periods. That still doesn't mean you don't give people basic justice because you're waiting for the phenomenon to work out in other sectors of society like the economics. People deserve justice now. Right? Segregation, for example, that has nothing to do with, I mean, it has something to do with economics, but it has nothing to do with whether or not a person should have a right to go and eat lunch at a Woolworths lunch counter, for example, was a question in the 1960s and 50s. <clears throat> and so there are a number of things where people have, have the impulse for the minority majority culture is, look, this is going to work itself out. Just relax. And there is a terrible racist history of that in America, and, and everybody in the majority culture has to realize that. We have to know. That's, and if you say, well, slow down, that's what people hear, especially African-Americans, that what they hear is Birmingham, Alabama, you just need to wait. And that's not an acceptable position. And yet, actually working out cultures, multi-ethnicity is enormously about trust. The whole thing is about we don't trust each other because trust flows on the basis of tribal cultural norms. If you fulfill all the tribal cultural norms that I expect, you're signaling to me that I can trust you and you can trust me. Okay? So, for example, white people use being on time as one of those. If I have a lunch meeting with you because we're going to do a deal and I meet you at a restaurant and you're late, more than five minutes, you've signaled to me within Northern European white culture that, that that's an indicator against me being able to trust you. Right? In other cultures, being on time is not used as a cultural indicator of trust. Me still being around when you get there, whenever you get there, shows you that I, I'm trustworthy because I'll wait around because this matters to me and you matter to me. 
And so all these cultures have these indicators, and those indicators at basis are indicators of trust. And the reason why cultures don't trust each other is because very different cultural indicators, and we have different histories, right? And so this whole thing is kind of about trust, and trust always takes time. But what that means is we have to be very proactive about doing actions that help build trust rather than just letting nature take its course. Does that make sense? So because it takes time, there has to be a proactive attitude and action towards building the trust that multi-ethnicity requires. Does that make sense? Third, um, progress in multiculturalism is intensely relational. This is partly gets back to the question of trust. <clears throat> but every time where I've seen people or I've myself been able to move forward in something related to multi-ethnicity, it has always been on the basis of a cross-ethnic or cross-cultural relationship. Everything that we've done between churches in Madison, everything I've ever accomplished, the reason Lexi and I ended up singing in a gospel choir was because we knew people. They knew us. They trusted me. Um, <clears throat> and so, therefore, um, in order to make this work, there, have to, there has to be relationships of trust, especially between key individuals and people that are brokers of leading other people. So people who possess a disproportionate amount of trust, like pastors and elders and ministry leaders, are people who are in a strategic position that if we build those relationships, so, because, for example, there are things that our church has done with another church because two people trusted each other, right? It took trust between Pastor Rayford and I to have a joint service, for example, right? And that trust got tested. I mean, some of you know that, like, <clears throat> when we had the joint service, not all of their people could come, and so they kind of, like, got killed in the offering. And so he had to come back, like, two weeks later and be like, hey, we lost, like, two grand doing that with you guys, which they did, and, and that's huge for them. And he had to ask me to, like, help them deal with that, right? And so that was very uncomfortable for him. And he had to believe that he could do that because he, I mean, that, and Satan has a way of using all kinds of things as wedges to break it. So trust is incredibly important. So therefore, the relationship that can bear the weight of events that could break trust are incredibly important. Fifth, multi, um, leadership in multiculturalism has to be deeply theological, deep theologically, personally, and convictionally. This is because um, our belief has to bear a lot of weight. Um, not only will things happen that you're not comfortable with, things that you don't even believe in, will, are, you're going to be asked to do things that you don't even believe in, and the only way that you can buy into that is if you believe in a deeper thing that makes that other thing workable. So for example, you might be really proud of your culture and think that every, what, something in, in our cultural identity everybody really should adopt because it's the strong thing and, and it's one of those things that we could really correct other cultures. And yet, we might have to pull back on it a little bit, recognizing that something else is even more important. An example of this that will come home to roost is how children should behave in children's ministry. So white people often think that a very high cultural value, this is back when we believed in parenting, is that kids should like, should like be polite and they should treat teachers with respect and they should not move around when they're being talked to and a number of things in, in terms of how that functions. And the reality is, is that the more, the more outreach that we do, the more we're going to get kids that are not used to that being demanded of them and them thinking that it's not. And, and parents feeling like if we insist on that with their kid, that we're not being very welcoming. And we might feel like, look, no, look, this is where they could really learn from us. 
Kids ought to be well-ordered. They should believe in high levels of executive function in relatively young children. This will help in them in so many ways. And look, maybe that's true. I, maybe that's true. The question is, is there something that's even truer? Which is, God wants the dividing wall of hostility brought down. The price of that is being unconditionally hospitable. Which means... Even some of the things that you think are the strongest within your cultural ideas that aren't explicitly in the text of the Bible may have to take a back seat to something else for the purpose of it. And that's why believing these things on a very deep theological level is very important. The other thing is this, is not only are we going to have to do what we think is overlooking things, every cultural group is going to feel like they're overlooking things all the time. And you can't overlook things this way. Like, it has to be effortless. It has to be effortlessly gracious. It can't be close. It can't be like, well, multiculturalism's important, so I guess, you know, we can do that. No, but you have to be like, oh, great. And that requires um, the self-discipline and the depth of belief in which reacting and responding becomes effortless, not just begrudging. Number six, uh, we are not seeking to reach any people of minority races who are already in a gospel-believing church. Now, in the future, the language of that will change. But right now, um, High Point Church has a very clear majority race and therefore attending majority culture. We are not trying, when we say we want to increase the multi-ethnicity in High Point Church, we are not saying that you should ask your friend at work who goes to Mount Zion Baptist Church to come to High Point. That's not what we're saying. Um, uh, what we want to do is we want to have an effect in which our church becomes multi-ethnic and, it, it, and if the African-American churches in Madison stay predominantly African-American, that's fine with us because we want to see peop new people come to church, people who have left church to re-enter church, and people who are going to churches that aren't gospel-believing at all and, then, and can't by any biblical consideration be considered a biblical church um, to come to church. And what that also means is, like, listen, if I, if I meet an African-American person that it's very clear to me, like, they tell me they're looking for a good black church in town, I know which, the, which, got, which ones are clearly gospel-believing, have good leadership because I know them, right? And so I know that Mount Zion's new pastor is great because Lloyd, Mike, and I have all spent time with him already. And I play, basket, I play basketball with him now twice a week. And Marcus is great. We, we went to his three-plus-hour um, installation service. And we've talked to him about the gospel, and he's very grounded, and we know that, and that's great. So I know I can say, hey, if you're looking for a church that's predominantly African-American, Mount, Mount Zion's great. If you're on the east side, Faith Place is great. But, but man, I'd love for you to come visit our church, too. Does that make sense? Because we're trying to get people who don't go to church to go to church. And if we can help grow churches that are predominantly, their majority culture is a different culture, that's fine. But that doesn't mean that we can't grow as well. The idea that there's only a certain amount of quote, minority people who will go to church is the same thing white people do when they try to get people to come from other predominantly white churches to come to their church. We don't want white people from other white churches to come to this church if their church is gospel-believing and at all relatively spiritually healthy. Similarly, we don't want to steal people from majority minority churches. We want a higher number of minority peoples in Madison to find a home in a local church, whether it's a majority-minority church. There are realities in the lives of people in the minority culture 
which make going to a majority minority church very comforting and helpful for them. And many of them will choose that. And I just don't really don't think we should begrudge that. They never get to be the majority in a room. And if they choose on Sunday morning to be the majority in a room so they can have something particularly focused on their cultural experience, I just don't think we have the right or we should judge that. But we should also seek to grow in multi-ethnicity ourselves. Does that make sense? Okay, great. What are we doing here? All right, I'm going to speed up a little bit. Um, Seven, we're not doing this so we can feel better. This is not about white guilt and therefore shouldn't be for you. I don't think white guilt is a, actually a helpful cultural phenomenon or a sociological thing. Um, and so we need to keep it theological. Otherwise, it gets really weird and emotionally <coughs> screwed up. Um, number eight, we need a plan, a specific plan for Latinos. That is, um, for a lot of Latino folks, we have the, a cross-linguistic aspect. And that's going to be very significant for them. Um, I, yeah, I, I'm just going to leave that there. It's it's our high. It's probably our highest percentage immigrate immigrant group, and so if we're gonna if we're gonna do a language specific ministry for any group, they're probably the most obvious. And this is also partly because um, even though Indians, that is South Asian Indians, are the highest minority group in Madison, it doesn't mean that they're all from the same language group. I don't know if you realize this, but India has piles of different languages, and so you might have one Indian visitor and you'd be like, oh, I'd love to do a native like a heart language thing for them, but that one speaks Malayalam, and this one speaks Telugu, and that one speaks Marathi, and this one, like, it's not like, a, oh, look, they're Indian, they probably, a, a lot of them speak English, and a lot of them speak Hindi, but remember, English is one of the national languages of India. Almost every Indian person we're going to bump into, actually, if they're educated and they're, therefore got here, almost all of them actually speak English, especially the heads of families. And so as much as I would love to have language-specific stuff for Koreans or for people from India, um, Latinos are going to stand out in this because of certain cultural realities. Nine, being effective multicultural, effectively multicultural requires an education most people lack. I don't, when I say that, I don't mean that in an educationally exclusivistic or whatever kind of way, but there really is like a whole education on how to be a multicultural, multi-ethnic person. When we send missionaries to other countries, they go through sometimes months of training on just how to realize who you are in the in the in the um, in the sending culture, what people are feeling, and how to figure out what that's like in the receptor culture, how to bridge that gap, how to how to look for signals, how to understand what their cultural practices, and all of that. And there are there's like a whole realm of knowledge about how to be effectively multicultural and multi-ethnic that you wouldn't just normally get. And part of a step here, and, and by that, listen. Okay, so let me be a little explicit here. I know that for some people here and for some people at High Point, because we tend to be fairly conservative and we tend to have a lot of Republican voters, um, that for some people that, that what you hear me say is you need to be more liberal and more of a Democrat. And I actually don't mean that at all. I just simply mean there are just sociological, cultural, relational, hospitable practices of relating to people of other cultures that are actually, most of them in the Bible itself, that are just fundamental to human interrelations. And um, I, I don't think that that means what that sounds like culturally for some of us in relationship to 
um, how people bully each other politically in terms of what you need to know or the education you don't have or if you don't get this then you're culturally ignorant or whatever. I don't think that's the case. I think that this is just fundamentally human and that almost all these prin principles are themselves in the Bible, which historically precedes our political arguing. Um, 10, moving towards multiculturalism requires constant energy infused into our action. So Andy Stanley has this principle that you should look through your church every year or so and say, you know, what are the things in our church that we're constantly like putting energy into? They're like, people aren't already passionate about them. They're not already flowing forward, but like, we're trying to like keep them on life support. We're trying to keep them going. He's like, and you need to just get rid of that stuff because it's killing you, right? Now, for the most part, I totally agree with that. As a normal organizational principle, if something is dying because nobody wants to do it and it's like a ministry, especially if it's been around for a generation and somebody was passionate about it and nobody's passionate about it anymore, like, you know, like the doily ministry or something, like sometimes you just got to be like, okay, look, we're not going to put any energy into that. But <clears throat> there are some things that are not natural. They don't come naturally to people. Our sinful nature is profoundly set against them. Um, and even after you come to Jesus, they don't come natural because there's all this sin memory. Like if you remember from Screwtape Letters, when the human gets saved, Screwtape the demon is giving advice. He's like, he says to the other demon, look, listen, I know he's accepted Jesus or he's come to the Lord, but all of his habits are all still in your favor. And so just use his habits against his profession. And so we have all kinds, every human has tons of tribal habits that stand in the way of us being actually multi-ethnic and multicultural. And all those habits are still on the side of the flesh, still on the side of the world, still on the side of the devils. And so things that are like that are going to require the infusion of energy. There's no way around this. And multi-ethnicity is one of them. It's one of the most uncomfortable things a human being can do. Unless you're, I mean, there's a very small percentage, you know, Hannah Savage, for example, like they just thrive on that for the most part. I'm not even sure that that's perfectly natural for her. I'm sure she works at it too. Um, there's a few, there's a small percentage of people just long to be missionaries. They just want to go live in the ghetto or something because it just sounds fun. And that's a very, the vast majority of humanity, it's very difficult. It goes against everything that they think because we all believe in our culture. Like, we pretend like, oh, well, we all believe these different things. It's no big deal. Nobody really believes that. Almost everybody believes that a large portion of their cultural beliefs are true and better, and that's why they believe them, and it's not at all arbitrary. And so, therefore, putting those up for negotiation or setting them on the side while entering into a relationship on which you're going to build trust by putting aside the cultural indicators on which you're used to building trust sounds like a self-contradictory thing. And it's extremely emotionally and psychologically uncomfortable. And so therefore, all of us have to put direct, intentional energy into it. And as a church, we have to put direct, intentional energy into it. And when you look at our primary and secondary core values at High Point, that is the difference. Primary core values has to be, have to be on your mind every second. Any moment they're not on your mind, you're not doing Christian ministry. Our secondary core values are always true, but they are the sort of phenomenon that you have to keep coming around and infusing energy into them. Otherwise, people stop doing them, even though they say they believe in them. Like, you know what the first one is? It's our first secondary core value. Anybody know it? Staff. Right? Evangelism. Right? 
Everybody says they believe in evangelism. Everybody says that we should share the gospel with other people, and then everybody doesn't do it. Because we're around the same people every day, we don't generally start new relationships. We've either shared the gospel or haven't, and now it's time's gone by. And so unless you're constantly hearing about how important evangelism is, unless you're constantly hearing about how important global missions is, unless you're constantly hearing about how important living intergenerationally is, and unless you're constantly hearing about how important living multi-ethnically is, we just lose our traction. Eleven. We're not yet a people of sufficient prayer or godliness to do this well without hurting a lot of people. Doing multi-ethnicity well requires a level of godliness that isn't, isn't normal if you're just playing around with godliness. It requires a certain amount of self-death because we identify with our cultures and we identify with our spaces and we identify with our friendship groups and we identify with our institutions and we identify with all these things personally and when we say, oh, let's change them by inviting people truly in who will want us to change things in order for them to be truly included, we take all of these things that we find very dear to ourselves and we say, oh, let's change them on the basis of things we may not even believe in. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of flesh that enters in here and unless we are 100% committed to taking up our cross daily and dying for the name of Jesus, accepting anything that it takes to be formed more in his image, to be more in his likeness, to live more completely for his, his vision and mission, and to seek to live in a community that looks more like his kingdom. This stuff just doesn't happen. And the reason most good things that the Bible promises don't happen in churches is because Christians play around with godliness rather than seek it. And this is the most important thing on the list. Twelve, multiculturalism is our best apologetic. In a culture like Madison, based on the people who live here, both the liberal whites and the people of other cultures that are coming here, and I don't know if you've seen the statistics for Dane, Dane County's projected population, the projected population over the next 40 years is, is that there will be very profound change in the terms of the number of minority peoples coming here, um, especially African-American and Latino. Um, and it, it also depends on how things go economically in Chicago and in Illinois. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the statistics on them financially, but um, financially, Illinois is just in the toilet. And so if they can't pay for basic things and so on, Madison is not that far away. It's going to look like a very... Um, favorable place to go and our system has is a fairly generous in terms of financial safety nets and so it's very possible we could get people who are poorer and more minority and used to more intensely urban environments coming here to live to find a new life and to make a new home and that's gonna happen in your lifetime in my lifetime and in our kids lifetimes and that's that's even bigger than just like hey some really educated black people are gonna move here and work at epic no this is different than that this is that a very broad swath of people of different races and different cultures are going to move here um, based on the best projections that we have. Um, Thirteen, multiculturalism will require our being emotionally expressive and adopting a diverse set of cultural practices. Um, I'll let you read um, that paragraph, but essentially there are some cultures that believe that not being very expressive is part of self-discipline and self-mastery, which is the most important thing for living a life in which you don't do stupid things that ruin your life. 
Um, a lot of Northern European cultures, I, the Dutch are kind of famous for this. Like, you know, a Dutch person, a, a Dutch person crying is a Dutch person bleeding, right? Like, they, I mean, they just, there's, and it's a very high cultural value. My, when, my, when my grandfather died, um, my mom, who's Italian, just like cried and cried and cried and cried and cried and cried. Where I'm at the funeral, and she's like the only person crying. Because my grandparents were all German British. And everybody's sitting there showing their respect with perfect posture and singing the hymn in four-part harmony with utter discipline because it is through discipline and composure and, um, and excellence by which we show our passion. And so these people, have, their cultural productions are things like opera, right? Not jazz. Dutch people did not create jazz, for example. And probably wouldn't have if it had been only Dutch people till the end of the world. Right? And yet in other cultures, they recognize that there are actually benefits to emotional expressiveness. I mean, even in my own white marriage, right? My wife is, I mean, she actually did it, had like the cultural DNA test. She's like all European, right? And yet she's from a non-interrupting culture, like where you wait for people to be done speaking before you start talking, right? So I'm from Italian culture where you don't. You indicate that you're listening by interrupting people. I'm, I, I've already heard what you haven't even said yet, and I'm already ready to respond, which my wife does not appreciate. And so we've had to work on that. And that's in our marriage. And so this is also true. And so what we need to do is recognize that writing flowing theological hymns that function in meter and that work through a theology as they go through are extraordinarily worthwhile and have been produced by a certain kind of culture, right? And there are other cultures that will take a theological truth and work it out a ways and then take its implication and repeat it like 37 times or more. And they recognize that that has another value because there is a certain kind of inhibition that's bound up in discipline that doesn't allow you to pour out emotionally when you should or use your emotions to strengthen your resolve. Because emotions can take us both ways. And a full humanist is one that actually has a lot of discipline and gets emotions flowing in the right way and uses them for everything they have to offer so that we're passionate people as well. And honestly, I don't think, and most cultures get a hold of something and then they work it out too far. And actually, multi-ethnicity gives us the opportunity to come together. And one of those areas is cultural expression and emotional expression, and that will affect our worship services. And until we all realize the importance of that, we're just not going to get anywhere. Um, but if you do, you'll realize that there are certain things that gospel music is better at than tradition, tra even traditional hymnody. That God, you know, God rests its soul. I mean, um, there are things that traditional hymnody, only traditional hymnody really does in certain ways. And contemporary Christian music in certain ways and gospel music in certain ways. And when we begin to realize that, um, it'll, it'll change us. And it'll, I think it'll enrich us significantly. Um, um, let me do this, that's too fast. Multiculturalism isn't just the end of learning how to love, it isn't the end, it's just next. So you might be like, okay, so this is what it means. No, no, no. The first thing, when I got here, the first thing it meant was to not be killing each other, right? And Bill Lurch did that bit. Loving each other is not splitting the church and killing each other and hating each other and like having chaos, right? And so we learned that for a decade. Billards came in and did some healing, right? Then the next thing was, we need to just build the family of God. The next thing was, there aren't a lot of millennials here. They're, 
if we're going to be a truly intergenerational church, we need them, but we need them with everybody else. And now we're really well. In fact, we got too many millennials now. And, right? And, and so we, we got that, right? And um, our gender ratio, which is, which is almost unheard of in American churches, is almost dead on 50-50. Usually there's at least a deficit of 15% of males, which is really encouraging. And so multi-ethnicity is just next, right? Because those other things aren't as hard, right? The next thing, the next a little bit harder thing is multi-ethnicity. But it's not the end. After that is going to be cross-educational and cross-class. It's easier to reach people who are educated minorities, right, than people who are legit poor, right? And so this is not the end. This is just next. If God bless us if we could get our handle on this, there's a nut, there are more steps to take um, along the road of learning how to love. And God help us that we would, through doing this, be ready for heaven. And then um, multiculturalism is a little bit like a, bi- a multiracial or a, a multicultural marriage. It's, it's actually kind of like all marriages. For this reason of cultures coming in contact with each other. And if, if you know what it's like, so my, one of my best experiences of trying to figure out what it, what it feels like to be a minority is going to my in-laws when I first got married. We're like, it seems like it ought to work. You really love their daughter. And they're nice people. But it is so weird. And you don't really want to go there. And at some, in your marriage, you kind of sort through this whole, like, I learned things, like, my family never hugged. We didn't touch each other in my family. We didn't do that kind of thing. Um, I, think I, can count, I think I can count on one hand the number of times I remember my dad hugging me, and they were all since I married Alexi. Okay? Now, I'm sure there were more. I just don't remember any of them. Okay? Like, no kidding. Right? And so we, Lexi and I kind of took some of that hippie thing on from her family, which is fine. It's great, sort of. Um, and there are other things that, about her family that just, she's like, she wanted to get away from. And she's like, we need to do it this other way. And we didn't necessarily, some of them we did more like my family. Some of them we just tried to shape ourselves after Christ as best we could. And it's going to feel like that. If you had a difficult time with your in-laws, I just want to tell you, it's going to feel a little like that. But I just want to tell you, for every person who's not part of the majority culture who comes in here, it, that's what it feels like for them. And so you need to think of yourself as the mother-in-law. All right? We are the mother-in-laws of the new son-in-law who just came into the family. And when he has babies with our daughter, we want them to come here for Thanksgiving. We want them to visit. And we want to do whatever it takes so that they'll visit. Otherwise, they won't. And then our, we're never going to see our daughter. Right? Where there's going to be a brokenness in the human family that we don't want. And because of that, we're going to have to like hold in the crazy and maybe serve different things at meals, find out what he likes the best, and do things so that they'll visit. Right? And, and in a certain kind of similar way in multi-ethnicity, we've got to realize what it's like for other people to visit majority culture and to be here. And for this to be their home, for them to feel like this is their home, this is their community. And some of us have never, not even entered into the mental work of what does it feel like. And we have to. And if you realize that your merit, your in-laws, it's been weird with them for like 25 years, then you'll know something of how long this is going to take for us to totally sort out. 
And you have to be as committed to this as you were committed when you got married to get along really well with your in-laws. And if you've got grown kids, how committed you were when she brought that idiot home, how committed you were to connect with him and to make him part of your family, even though you don't get him and you don't even know why she likes him. But you have to do it. And um, now you'll notice that for this, basically this whole talk, I've been speaking from the perspective of the majority culture. Okay, and that's because the majority of the people here are from the majority culture. Um, and that's just, that, so I think that's the message you need to hear. Um, I know that when um, folks that are in majority cultures are talking about being part of High Point Church, they have different conversations than this. Um, uh, but we need, we need to be really focused and have our eye on the ball here. And we need to remember that um, one of the things that's been, that is the hardest to deal with, and I'll end with this, and I'm sorry, I'm going a little longer than I should, um, is that when we, because well, we have to promote people into ministry leadership, elder leadership and staff leadership that are not part of the majority culture. And one of the difficult things about this is, is that leaders from those cultures are going to feel off to you. Um, and it's, it's not just going to feel like they're different. It's going to feel like they're not as good. I'm, I'm dead serious. Um, when, when, we interview, like when I interview somebody who's not part of my culture, somebody who I'm told is just as good, because, I mean, obviously I'm inside this. I'm the fish in the water. I can't really know. But I've, I've read a number of different places in, in the form of very credible arguments that they're, they're just going to feel off. And when somebody feels off, they feel like they're not as good. And when you receive ministry from people who are from different cultures, that may be a different culture. They may be the same race as you, but they might just be a very different culture than you. Um, or they are a different race. Your first feeling is often going to be that they're off a little bit. Or I don't want to hang with their accent. Or why are they saying it this way? Or why are there... You know, why are they dwelling on that point? Or why are they... And if you... I, the reason I'm telling you that is if you feel that, if that's really natural. That's the normal, quick-thinking human response to people of other cultures of all kinds. What we need to do is realize that that's normal, and we need to try to get past it. And we need to try to... I mean, um, we need to try to not just be open-minded. We need to try to actively learn to receive. Otherwise minority leadership will not stay here because nobody wants to lead people who won't even listen to them. Right? And if there are not people of majority cultures in our leadership, there will not be people of majority cultures in our congregation because it's a signal to them that they don't have a say and they don't have a part. Does that make sense? And so that's a very important part of what it means to be multi-ethnic is, is openly, explicitly, directly moving our heart to receive even when we're not naturally drawn in because people are like us. Does that make sense?